I can truthfully say he's never, never once failed to meet our needs. We thank the Lord for it. We're going to be in Mark's gospel today. If you'll be finding that in your Bible, Mark chapter 15. Good to see you today. Good to have guests with us today. Welcome to our services. And of course, good to see our folks here again. Good to have Eric's parents with us today from Pennsylvania. It's a long trip, but they came to make sure Mackenzie's behaving herself. And I understand their concern. They're actually on their way to Colorado to visit family out there and stop by to see us on the way. So good to have them. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for well over two years. And um, it's just been a wonderful journey. We still have a few weeks left, but, but it's, when you read through the Gospels, you see the work of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the example of Jesus, and the struggles that the disciples had, but it all comes to this one point, and that's when Jesus will eventually go to the cross and suffer and die for us. And so we're going to read some of that today. If you're able to stand, please stand in honor of God's Word as we read in Mark chapter 15, and let's look together where we left off last week in the 15th verse. This is where Jesus has been before Pontius Pilate, the governor of the region, and he has given in to the cries of the angry mob to crucify our Savior. Verse 15, it says... And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. So Pilate releases Jesus and, or excuse me, releases Barabbas and turns Jesus over to the, to the Roman soldiers And it says in verse 15, when he had scourged him, when he had had Jesus scourged according to his uh, directive, then he was led to be crucified. And we're going to look at those two subjects together, really the scourging and the crucifixion today, and we'll see how far we get into that. But let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the music today and the singing and the emphasis on our Savior, the emphasis on the cross the emphasis on your faithfulness to us. Lord, when we come to church, we want our attention to be directed not toward ourselves, but toward you. And it's been done today. We're thankful for that. You are faithful. You are powerful. And Lord, today we come before you and pray that you'd use your word as we study it together to help us to grow, to draw close to you, to become more of what you have in mind for us. We pray today, Father, for those who or in this building today, or maybe even those who will see this sermon or hear it later that may not know you, we pray that the message of the cross, Lord, would reveal your great love for us and our need to be saved. And even today, that folks might put their faith and trust in you. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We'll read further on here in just a moment. But... 
It's interesting to note that before Jesus was crucified, he was scourged. Pilate had him scourged. Um, in a Roman capital punishment, in a Roman execution, it was customary for the execution to be preceded by this scourging. And so we look at these two forms of punishment as two separate forms of punishment, but the one, it wasn't that the, Jesus was treated uh, more harshly because they scourged him and then crucified him. That was the Roman custom. So this matter of scourging is a word that we don't really use much anymore. And uh, when you read the text, if you look there in verse 15, it just says, when he had scourged him, that's all it says about the scourging, and it's true in all the Gospels, so it's mentioned in the other Gospels, there's no details about what it was. But these people, you can be assured, were familiar with it. Again, it was a form of Roman punishment, and the Jews, even in their own culture, the Jews were familiar with it. A scourge, for those who may not know, and probably there are some who may not know, it was like, it's like a whip. A scourging was a whipping, like a lash. And it was used to discipline or it was used to torture people. Now just again, um, just so that we might kind of connect with the history of scourging, the Jews actually practiced scourging in the Old Testament. It was a, an instrument that they were sim, uh, familiar with but not as severe as the Romans. Let's, let's hold our place here in Mark and go to the book of Deuteronomy, to the Old Testament for a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, and I just want to um, read a few verses where this matter of beating um, was laid out for the, for the Jewish people here in the law. We're in chapter 25 of Deuteronomy in verse 1 where the Bible says, If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. That's what the purpose would be, to recognize the person's right and judge the person's wrong. Verse 2, And it shall be, if the wicked shall be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face, before the judge's face, according to his fault, by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto him, unto thee. So here in, Rome, in the Jewish law, a form of punishment was a beating, you know, and, but there, was, there were restrictions on it. No more than 40 stripes or 40 lashes would be permitted. You might remember this. Let's go back to Mark uh, now. You might remember this. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, of the Jews, not the Romans, he said, of the Jews, five times received I... 40 stripes save one, 40 minus one, 39 stripes. Couldn't go more than 40. 40 would be the limit. So, so this was not unusual to this culture, even for the Jewish people, to uh, see that as a form of punishment. Now, it's been a long time since we had that kind of punishment 
In our legal system here, you might remember some years ago when a person, an American, that was arrested overseas and they caned him. Do you remember that? And how, what a controversy that was about his caning. That's a, it was a, they beat him. They whooped him with a cane. We don't really do that too much. My wife does it to me occasionally, but not too much. I say 39 stripes is all. But, but in the Jewish lifestyle, that was, that was a part of their culture. But the Roman scourging, which Jesus is about to endure in Mark 15, was much more severe. With the Romans, there was no limit to the number of lashes that they could give you. As a matter of fact, sometimes people were killed. They, they, their, their, their body, their, their constitution could not uphold, withhold that kind of a beating. Same kind of instrument. A short, a short whip, a handle with usually several strips of leather that came out from that short that, that whip. But in the Romans, they would put various things woven into the leather. Uh, pieces of lead or metal or glass or, or like balls, different things. Because they intended to do much more damage with this scourging than the Jews were accustomed to. The subject would be stripped of his clothing. His hands would be tied to a pole. Sometimes they would be leaned over a pole and tied down. The purpose of scourging was to inflict as much pain as possible without killing them, but also to humiliate them. It was a very degrading form of punishment. As a matter of fact, and I've read much on this subject, as a matter of fact, as a rule, there were exceptions, but as a rule, Roman citizens were exempt from scourging. They would not scourge their own citizens because it was so severe and so shameful. And generally it was only for slaves or for non-Romans. So what they would do, these soldiers, and this was not inflicted by you know, people, who were, people who were gentle or kind. It was inflicted by these Roman soldiers. And they would repeatedly strike the victim across his back with full force, causing these deep contusions and actually cutting through the skin. The purpose of those things being in the leather, they were designed to lacerate, to cut through the skin. And the more they beat them, the dark, deeper these lacerations would go, even tearing into the muscles, pulling out ribbons of bleeding flesh. I read a, an account yesterday of a man who was actually from Caesarea who wrote a historian who wrote about witnessing a scourging and said that it sometimes the inward parts of the body would be revealed, exposed, including the bowels just torn apart. This is the kind of whipping, this kind of scourging, what it was. It was not, it was not just a, a slap on the wrist, but Jesus gave himself to that. You know, the Old Testament prophet in Isaiah chapter 50 said, I gave my back to the smiters. Jesus gave his back to the smiters. So this flogging, this scourging was a legal preliminary to a Roman crucifixion. So back in verse 15 it says, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, 
released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. So Pilate delivered Jesus to the soldiers to enforce the crucifixion. And in the next few verses, we see the introduction that Jesus had to these Roman soldiers who subjected him to cruel mocking. Let's look together if we could in verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. So there's a small group of soldiers. The Praetorium is like their headquarters there near the temple. And it says they called together the whole band. So it's not just three or four or five they get together this entire garrison of soldiers. Verse 4, or verse, um, verse 17 says, And they clothed him with purple. So they took his clothing off, clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head. Now this is all just to be a mockery, to make light of Jesus, to mock him. They put on this robe of purple, which is a a robe, a color of royalty. And then they, they make him a crown, took thorns, made a crown out of thorns and crushed that crown upon Jesus' head. Verse 18, it says they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19, they smote him on the head with a reed, a reed being a stick or a rod. He's got this crown of thorns and they're crushing that upon his brow with this, with this reed and did spit upon him. Bowing their knees, worshipped him, just mocking him. You know, I'm not an expert in the Greek language by any means, but my studies tell me that when it says there they spit on him, it didn't when they just spit on him once, they just kept spitting. And, you know, just it's always, that's always been a, a degrading thing, a sign of disrespect and they just kept spitting on him and mocking him bowing down before him saying hail king of the Jews just ridiculing and torturing Jesus and it says in verse 19 and when they had mocked him they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So all this happens, this beating, the scourging, the already twice before this, he's been subjected to beating. They're spitting upon him. And by the way, that's another thing that was prophesied in the Old Testament, where it says, I, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Jesus subjected himself willingly. I'm glad those Old Testament verses are in there. That he gave his back to the smiters. That he, he submitted himself to this spitting and this shame. And if you sit here and hear this, you're thinking, I wonder what, what was the reason? Why did he do that? Now, it's, it's very simple. That reason was you. That's why he did that. He did that for you. He did that because he was willing to pay the price for your Redemption. It was the price that had to be paid if we're going to be forgiven, if we're going to be redeemed, if we're going to be saved by the grace of God. And so after all of this in verse 20, it says that the soldiers led him away 
to crucify him. The Romans did not invent crucifixion. Uh, It was a barbaric form of punishment. The Assyrians in their history, the Assyrians and even the Babylonians, and of course that was passed on to the Greeks, the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great. All of these different uh, groups, these, these kingdoms practiced crucifixion. So it would not be unusual if you lived in those days, it would not be unusual for you if you're riding into town or whatever to see someone hanging on a cross. It happened. By the way, it happened after the resurrection of Christ. They did that to many followers of Christ. Again, in mockery. Nailing them to the cross. So it was not original with the Romans, but it said that they perfected the torture, this form of torture, of crucifixion. It was the most cruel form of dying a slow death. And as he's being led away to be crucified, verse 21 tells us that they, the soldiers, compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian. He was from Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in the northern part of Africa, 800 miles from Jerusalem. And you might wonder, well, why was this Simon the Cyrene in Jerusalem? He was there for the Passover. Jewish people traveled from all over to come to this annual feast. And so Simon of Cyrene, he happened to be there. It says in verse 21, they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country. And it gives this bit of information. Only Mark gives us information. The father of Alexander and Rufus. And they compelled this man to carry the cross, to bear the cross of Jesus. So Simon was there for the Passover. He just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Uh, It's interesting that, again, that Mark refers to his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Um, We don't know this. We can't know this for certain. But there's a Rufus that's mentioned in the book of Romans And there's an Alexander that's mentioned in the book of uh, Acts. And so very well could be that we don't know, could well be that they were the sons that are mentioned here. But apparently Mark must have known who this Rufus was. I mean, we have to to understand that or or someone just pointed it out to him. In either either case, he's, he's recruited to carry the cross. And the cross generally... Uh, the, the, the crossbar, we would call it, of the cross was, was laid upon the shoulders of the victim who is being killed, who's being crucified, who's being tortured and, and sometimes tied to that post. They would carry that post to a place and usually it was a place that they were, other crucifixions had taken place. But we can only assume this, that Jesus is so weak at this moment in time that he could not carry the cross. And, and Simon was, was recruited to do that. It reads on then in verse 22, it says, And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. That's what the word Golgotha is translated as. It means the skull. And again, we can only assume that that's because of the, the way the the 
uh, place was, the hill. We sing about a hill called Mount Calvary. And it was a, and the Greek translation of, of Calvary is, is also the skull. Uh, my wife and I have been, you've probably seen pictures or maybe you've been to Israel. We've been to Israel a couple of times. There's a place that, where they take you and say this might have been where Jesus was crucified. And the way the, the, the rocks are formed, it really looks like a person's skull, like sockets in the rock where like a person's eyes and their nose. And we don't know if that's the same place and we don't need to know. But that's where the, they took him to a place called the skull, which was a place where people were being, uh, would be crucified. Some people think that one of the reasons they called it the skull is because there were skulls of those who were killed that were there on the ground around this place. But in either case, it tells us here in verse 22, they bring him to the place Golgotha. And verse 23 says, they gave him, they gave to Jesus to drink wine mingled with myrrh or gall, but he received it not. And that was, that was a form of sedative, really, a, a sort of a mild pain reliever. They would give to the person who's about to be crucified, but very interesting, just a short phrase, but so full of meaning in verse 23, he received it not. Jesus wouldn't take that. If that was going to relieve him of some of the agony, Jesus refused it because he wanted to take the full weight of the pain and the agony of the cross for our benefit. Verse 24 says, And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. Again, another passage that's a quote really was predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament in Psalm 22, which is a great psalm about the crucifixion of Christ. And it says that his garments would be, they would cast lots for his garments. And then in verse um, 25 it says, and it was the third hour, which gives us a, a, a time frame of when this is taking place. The third hour of the day, using their time, would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. So this is, not a, this is not something that began in the afternoon. He's been, Jesus has been going through this all night. It's good to remember that. The night before this, he spent those agonizing hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he went before three different... Uh, basically legislative situations where the Jews were trying to find him guilty of something and then he's been beaten twice before he went to the scourge and then he's been scourged and now it's just 9 o'clock in the morning and it says in verse 25, they crucified him. Crucifixion, you know, the, is painful just in the, you think about just the act of crucifying someone, taking, taking their hands and nailing them to a cross. The pain of that, driving this spike, this nail through their hands and then again later through their feet. But, but that was only the beginning. Nine o'clock in the morning they, they hung him on the cross. Verse 26 says the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. That was again customary that they would take a person's crime and they would put it on a, a sign, we would say, a placard of some kind, and they would nail that above them. This is what this person is guilty of. By the way, that's a, that's a kind of a vivid picture.
picture for someone who's watching someone. Maybe the, the two people next to Jesus were thieves. These were thieves. They, this is what their thievery got them. But the, what they put across Jesus is, was the king of the Jews. This, is, this was his accusation, the king of the Jews. And it says in verse 27, I mentioned those on either side of him. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. Again, Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Christ came to this earth, said he would be numbered with the transgressors. All of this a part of fulfilled prophecy that Jesus would be crucified with the transgressors. By the way, Jesus was always a friend of sinners, a friend of the common man. And he was crucified here. When these people looked at him, he was crucified as a common criminal. The mocking continues in verse 29. It says, And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. People are just jeering and cheering and mocking and the religious people, the ones who hated him the most, verse 31, are right in the group. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said unto themselves with the scribes. Here these religious leaders are. He saved others, himself he cannot save. Verse 32, let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe and they that were crucified with him reviled on him. Everyone in the crowd, including those two thieves on the cross, reviling him, crucify him, mocking him. Which, by the way, we know from Luke's gospel, and we're not going to get into that today, but in Luke's gospel, one of these thieves came to his senses and recognized who Jesus was and repented of his sins and received by faith, the gift of eternal life. And Jesus said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Then we look in verse 33, if we could look there, please. It says, and when the sixth hour was come. So this is now three hours into this torment. Three hours into this torture. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Not like a cloud came between the sun and the people on earth. Not like that, but a, a supernatural darkness. A miraculous darkness came across the sky in that, in that third hour. And it says in verse 33, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Imagine that. From noon until 3 o'clock, total darkness. In verse 34 it says, and in the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And we have it interpreted in our Bible today, verse 34, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, everything that's happened up until this point 
is agonizing, but I think this is the greatest agony that Jesus faced. Because him who knew no sin was becoming sin for us. And even though the religious people had forsaken him, even though his own disciples had forsaken him, even though the Roman government had turned, turned against him in such a vicious manner, he always knew he had his father's fellowship. He was doing the father's will. But in this moment, what I believe happened was that God the Father, even Himself, turned His back on His Son. And why? Because He became sin for us. The hardest part, I believe, of this whole torturous time was when Jesus, the Son of God, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us. And in that moment, every ungodly thing that I've ever done Every selfish act, every moment of rebellion, every wicked thought, every ill-advised word, every impure motive that you and I have ever, ever committed was put on Jesus Christ at that time. That he might pay the price for our redemption. That he might provide and purchase salvation for us. And today it ought to make us just love Him more. To think about what Christ has done for us. The light of the world became sin. He became sin. No wonder the sun refused to shine because the Creator of the sun was made to be sin for us. And they didn't understand. The people didn't understand what was going on. Verse 35, it says, And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias or Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed, lifted it up and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias um, will come to take him down. In verse 37 it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He fulfilled his purpose. He finished his work. And we'll just read one other verse. Verse 38, it says, And the veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now that's just, the temple was not where they were. Jesus was crucified. Not, he was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. But this is a statement of fact. The moment Jesus died... The veil in the temple, that veil is talking about a curtain, a heavy curtain, between the holy place and the holy of holies. Priests could go into the holy place, and priests would go in there where the showbread was, the table of showbread, and, and the, but, but this was the holy of holies. The two things inside the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat, the mercy seat that sat upon it. And there was a curtain you had to go through, and they only, no one went into that place except once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest only could go inside the holy place. And there he would go in the Holy of Holies. That, that, that uh, mercy seat was the place where God would meet with his people. The glory of God would rest over that mercy seat. 
So there's nothing more sacred, nothing, no place more sacred to the Jewish people than the Holy of Holies. And that veil, that veil, they say, could have been as much as four inches thick and about six foot tall. And when Jesus gave up the ghost, when Jesus died, that veil miraculously was rent. It was torn from the top to the bottom, just torn apart. And there's much symbolism in that. One symbol, one part of the symbolism is that God had finished what was necessary for us to get to God, to go into the presence of God. We didn't need to go through a priest. We didn't have to go behind the curtain. We can go directly to God through the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. The fact that it was rent from the top to the bottom symbolizes not that man or religion can work its way up to God, but God came from heaven and brought salvation to us and ripped apart that which stands between us and God through the death of His Son. Thank God for that today. Heaven came down to let humanity, lost humanity, go into the very presence of God. I think about these onlookers, how deceived they must have been. They thought they had won, right? They'd finally achieved their goal, their objective. This Jesus of Nazareth, who was anti-establishment, this Jesus of Nazareth, who did for people what the religion could never do. We finally eliminated his competition. They thought they had won, but I'm telling you, they didn't win. Jesus won. Love won. Grace won. And you read the rest of the story, it's amazing what God did through that. What, that, what happened on that day has been changing lives forever. A lot of people, sadly, a lot of people believe that if they'll get a, become a part of a religion or join a religious group or start doing these religious acts, that somehow God is going to forgive them, let them into heaven. They pay enough money and pray enough prayers. But none of those things can make a person right with God. None of those things can cleanse our sins. Only one thing. And that's the sacrificial death of God's Son. His death on the cross for us. If you're here today and you have doubts about your salvation, if you're here today and you don't really know whether you've been born again, I want you to know what this story, what this narrative means. It means that you don't have to do anything and you can't do anything to save your own soul. But Jesus has already done everything to save it. You say, then what must I do? We must receive Jesus Christ as Savior. We must put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We must believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And by the way, you ought to be grateful that there's nothing you can do that could earn your salvation because if you could do it, then you could undo it. But salvation is what God does. 
It's what he does. And it's been a long time ago, but I just thank God today that in his great mercy, one day he began to work in my life to bring me to the place that I would be willing to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I've never regretted that. And anybody that's ever been saved, you'd never regret that. You may not understand things that have happened in your Christian life, but salvation makes us different people. It makes us the children of God. And if you're sitting here today, and I'm sure that's true of people sitting here today, I'm not the judge of anybody's heart. But if you don't know Christ, you ought to cry out to him today. And if you think, and I'm, I'm going to say this because this is the way I used to think. When I used to sit in church as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, my mama was in church and she made us go to church. I never got to vote on it. And I would sit there and I wasn't happy in church. I looked forward to the day when I could get out of church, do my own thing. But you know why? Because I didn't know him. I didn't know Jesus Christ. I'd made professions of faith. I'd been baptized but what I'm telling you today didn't really mean anything to me. But I'm telling you, you ever see yourself as a lost, hell-bound sinner and you find salvation, it'll change your life. You say, well, I'm afraid if I really got my life right with God, what my friends might think. Forget about your friends. You think about what God thought when he sent his son to die on a cross for your sins. You ought to forget about what your friends think and say, this God who loved me so much, I'm going to give him my life. I'm going to love him. The devil do everything he can to keep people from salvation. But I'll tell you, he can't keep you from coming to Christ if you want to. You ought to come to him today. And if you're here today and you are saved, and it's most of the people here, you say, I... I know that I'm saved. I received Christ. He's changed my life. Would you spend a few minutes today just thinking about what he's done for you and thank him for what he's done for you? He deserves that. Wouldn't you agree? He deserves that. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I never tire of reading about the cross studying about the cross, the scourging that Jesus endured, the crucifixion that he endured. There's no story written by men that could ever compete with the wonder of this story. It'd be a good day just to Thank Him for what He's done for you. Our Father, as we pray today, we're, we're humbled by Your love for us. Why You would send Your Son to endure so much for us. That we might be your sons and your daughters, your children. God, we're so grateful today and ashamed that we don't love you more. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything you went through for us. The mocking, the humiliation, the shame beating 
the agony, the pain, the torture. God, we thank you today. Lord, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. While our heads are bowed today and while the instrument plays, maybe today.